it isn't necessarily an orphanage of children who don't have parents. It's often and majority of these kids um, do have parents, but because of living situations, they are not able to raise them. And so they actually opt to leaving their kids here. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 81 of the Command of Voice. Today I speak with the founder of Lunatech Northwest. Please welcome Tobin Fekas. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Camino Voice Podcast, where I interview folks around Camino Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. Uh... On this episode, I get to speak with the founder of Lunatech Northwest, uh, and actually one of my best friends growing up. Uh, Tobin Fekas has been, uh, well, he's been a part of the community for, you know, same, uh, longer than I have, because he actually lived here his whole life instead of moving here. And uh, yeah, the Fekas family, you you actually might know a Fekas just because there's, you know, five brothers in this family, and um, they've lived in this community for a long time, and so... Um, anyways, I, I got to interview him. I've been waiting to do this for a while, and so we finally got to put it on the calendar and do it. Um, but he actually has a tech company called Lunatech Northwest, and what it does is um, he does computer programming for, for small businesses, um, solopreneurs, and basically helps them on the systems and problem-solving side of the tech side of their business. So using computer programming to fix or uh, simplify um, tasks and things that they do on the back end of the business. So uh, mainly he works on the back end of businesses, um, but is truly gifted in computer programming and understanding and thinking through and solving these types of problems. Um, you, you won't hear that in the interview. Uh, he won't say it himself, but uh, he's very well skilled in this ability, and uh, which is why he's, he's been able to start this business um, and uh, it's been really cool to be able to watch him. Uh, obviously, I've known him for a long time. We grew up together. We used to do bike rides together. And um, anyways, this is going to be part one of the interview. This is going to go over uh, some of the stuff he did um, prior to starting Lunatech. And then next week, part two will be uh, the founding of Lunatech and getting more into the details of that. So uh, anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Tobin Beckus. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Command of Voice. Today, I'm here with the founder of Lunatech Northwest. Welcome to the podcast, Tobin Fekas. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Tobin. Um, okay. Well, my name is Tobin Fekas, and I grew up here on Commando Island, lived here, oh, 31 years now with a couple-year gap in Mexico, um, and I've got four brothers, um, and... We've, yeah, we've just lived here on the island uh, our, our whole life, and we love it. Nice. Very cool. Um, <clears throat> so you grew up on Camino. What was that like? Um, I know for a lot of the podcast listeners, they know that I grew up on the Camino. Um, what was it like for you growing up? Uh, for me growing up, well, uh, we were all homeschooled until ninth grade, and then my parents gave us the option to go to public school, and we all chose different years to go to public school. Um, I was homeschooled through ninth grade and then did a private Christian school 10th and 11th grade and then public school 12th grade. And so kind of did them all. 
and uh, growing up was great. I had four brothers um, and spent a lot of time outside building forts, breaking things, building <laughs> things, throwing things, uh, breaking more things. And, um, oh, you know, bike rides, field trips. Um, we did, we, we had a lot of fun. We had some property and had zip lines and buoy swings and built forts and, uh, you know, find a dead tree and climb up to the top and shake it until it falls down and you ride it, <laughs> ride it down. So, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun. We had four boys. Um, so it was pretty rowdy and, but not dangerous, just rowdy. Because climbing to the top of a dead tree. No, definitely not dangerous. Um, very encouraged. <laughs> so um, with growing up then, how, what was the island like for you, um, I guess, during that time? Like, uh, did you go all over the island and stuff like that? Or did you stay pretty local at, within your own yard? Um, yeah, I mean, we were, um, let's see. I mean, my grandma lived on the island. Mm -hmm. uh, we were part of the homeschool co-op. And so... I mean, we were just all over the place. We'd do field trips. We would, I mean, when you're homeschooled, you got to take advantage of those kinds of things and just take a day off school and go to a park or go skiing or, you know, figure out something else to do. Um, so, yeah, spent a lot of time at friends' house, neighbors' houses, grandma's house, um, a lot of time at grandma's house working in the yard. Um, but, yeah, we, were, we, we went all, we did, a, we did a lot of traveling. Let's say that. Yeah. Yep. Well, and, and most listeners probably don't know, but uh, Tobin and I grew up together. We were uh, good friends, and we would do a lot of these bike rides and, and trips that we could plan together, um, limited by not being able to drive. <laughs> we had to bike everywhere. Um, so we, we got to do a lot of different uh, things around the island. And so... Um, yes, but I was always the odd one out because the three of the four of us, uh, I lived the farthest away, so I always had to leave early to get home before it was dark, if I got home before it was dark. Um, but yeah, a lot of bike rides down to the beach, um, Little Store by the Bay, which, you know, rip Little Store by the Bay. Um, <laughs> it's now a big condo. Uh, and sitting at the tree, throwing rocks in the water. Um, yeah, did a lot of that. Uh, airsoft fights, um, Halo nights. Um, gosh, we did everything. Yeah. Well, and actually, I got to interview uh, the owner of Forte Dance, who um, is actually right located where oh, the little yep. store with the bay. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me that um, there was talk of actually opening up another little grocery store there. Um, oh, I didn't know that. And uh, I mean, I think it was before the studio went in. <coughs> that was what they were intending to be put there. So um, didn't end up doing that. But no. Yeah. So. Yeah, and Huntington's is right around the corner. Yeah. So Although I, on a bike, it doesn't feel right around the no, corner. No, <laughs> it's actually not right around the corner. And I've ridden a bike there, and I was there last night, actually. Great place. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so you, you went to this, you tried a bunch, I mean, not tried, but you did a lot of different schools. Like, you did homeschool, you did a private school, and then you did public school. What was your overall education experience then um, through homeschooling and all these different things? What did you feel was <coughs> beneficial of each one? Where do you feel like they were lacking in them? Um, I like to say, um, well, I guess I should say right off the bat, I'm very different. I just do things differently. I learn differently. I would, uh, homeschooling, I would sit in the living room and do my school upside down in a chair, or I'd walk around in circles or walk outside. I mean, I just, I learn. My mom says I'm a kinetic learner. I learn by doing and moving. Um <clears throat> The, the biggest thing I remember about homeschooling was that my mom taught me how to learn. And 
I don't look back at homeschooling and think, oh, I just learned this specific thing or learned even a subject. I just think that my mom did a really good job of teaching me how to learn so that wherever it is that I went, I would just learn whatever I needed to. Tinker, uh, break things down, fix things sometimes, mostly break things down. Um, so I really enjoyed homeschooling. It was it was different and accommodated my learning style, mm-hmm. um, whereas... I did, because I went to public school my senior year, I learned how much different it was and how focused it was on quantity over quality and memorization. And um, I I don't know that I learned a lot. It was very structured and I don't learn very well in a structured environment. So that was really, it was fun because... Uh, It was fun in the sense that because I was homeschooled, I wasn't going to public school as a public schooler. I was going to public school as a homeschooler, which meant (laughs) I had six periods. I was full-time, but they were all electives. So it didn't matter what my grades were. My grades were fine, but it didn't matter. So it was a lot less um, pressure, I guess. Yeah. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, I, I loved the time there. It was very fun more because I had a bunch of friends, um, not because I was I felt like I was getting a phenomenal education. And then in between, I went to a private Christian school here in Stanwood. <clears throat> um, you and I both went there. And I did enjoy that. That was kind of a happy medium. It was more structured than homeschool, but um, still gave a lot of leeway to, to learn in my style because we'd go once or twice a week. And... Yeah. Um, do it on our own um, at home on the other days. Yeah. So I I look back on it very fondly. I like that I got to experience each of them mm-hmm. and kind of figure out how it is that I learn the best. Yeah. Yeah. And do you feel like uh, had you started with public school that it would have been really difficult for you to in that environment? Uh, yeah. I would have been the problem child that wouldn't sit in his chair. <laughs> <laughs> Or I'd sit in somebody else's chair and just make a ruckus. <laughs> yeah. I think I, w- I just, I do things differently, and that doesn't work so well. <clears throat> in the public setting, yeah. Public setting. No, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to bash one over the other. They're all great, and they, they have um, strengths and weaknesses. And um, for my personality and upbringing and learning style, homeschool worked really well with, uh, for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think one of the things... <clears throat> And, you know, we've, I've got four kids, and so um, watching Brittany and, and talking with her and hearing all of the work and involvement there is in homeschooling um, has brought on a whole new found respect for my mom, um, who had to learn a lot of this stuff on her own. She didn't have, she didn't grow up in a homeschooling community. She didn't have even an example of this, mm-hmm. and yet she did that for her kids, and I'm just blown away that my mom was able to figure all of this out on the fly. Um, because my wife, um, who did have a lot of that, um, still, like, there's just so much work to do in homeschooling. Yeah, I was actually just talking about this last night. Like, our, our, our moms don't necessarily get married or go to school to become a homeschool mom. Like, my mom has a degree, and she went to school to be a nurse, and so she's a nurse. But because you're a nurse doesn't necessarily make you a good teacher, but she is a good teacher, and she had to learn how to do that. Outside of her job and outside of her marriage and outside of her house and, you know, all the other responsibilities, she was still a, a phenomenal teacher to four rowdy, sometimes reckless young boys that break things around the house. Yeah. Yeah. So. Very cool. Um, so then you graduate high school. Uh, where did you go after that? 
Um, yeah, after that, um, I went on a short-term mission trip, like 10 days down to an orphanage in Mexico, um, my senior year, uh, December, week before Mm. Christmas, and that would have been 2007, I guess. Um, and I had every desire and dream in the world to not only leave my parents' house, as most seniors do, wanted to move out and go to college and play soccer on some sort of scholarship and do computer programming or some sort of computery type thing. Well, I didn't really know about the difference between software and hardware at the time. I just knew that I was good at tinkering with things. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's memorable to me because I had to have a huge English project done uh, the first or no second week of January of 2008. Uh, We got it at the beginning of the school year, and it was to go around to three different universities and do entrance exams and fill out their essays and applications and tour the campus. Um, And so I still have that booklet of all this work I did to figure out which college I wanted to go to. And I'd done that kind of October, November, December. And then I went on this uh, mission trip to Mexico and came back and just... I don't have a good good word to use or a good way to say it. I just didn't want to go to college anymore. And it was very... I was surprised because that was all I ever wanted to do. I wanted to go to college and live that, you know, have that m- memorable experience and play soccer. And, um, yeah, I got back from that trip and I just... I didn't want to anymore. And so... Uh, it was kind of weird. The next, you know, the last half of my senior year, everybody around me is talking about college and where they're going, what they're going to do, and, you know, all the struggles with figuring out how to, you know, what college you're going to get into, and, oh, I got into three, and how are you going to choose which to go to, and all the finances. And I remember sitting in my civics class towards the end of the year, and the the teacher asked... Um, <clears throat> Asked everybody who was uh, applied for or accepted into college or picked a college to raise their hand. And I remember being the only one that didn't raise his hand. And that was very odd. And I like, like I said, I do things differently, and that was very different. And, you know, then I get all the questions of, why aren't you going to college? And why are you going to Mexico? And all that stuff. So I kind of had a very relaxing end of my senior year because I didn't have to worry about <laughs> any of this stuff that ever other like my GPA or my SAT scores or it was kind of nice yeah um so yeah that was I graduated in June and applied to go down and live at this uh orphanage called FFHM um it's on the Baja Peninsula in Mexico um so yeah I applied there and didn't hear back till the end of September and left the second week of October 2008. So lived there for, well, I applied for six months and then the six months came up and I applied for another six months and then that one year came up and then applied for another year and so ended up staying down there two years. Okay. Nice. So going back just a little bit then, was there anything that on that trip in that December that um, that you remember as being something that made you shift your mind in not going to college? Uh, honestly, no, I, I couldn't wait to go to college. That's why it's so weird and why it sticks out in my memory, just because that's, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And there wasn't, 
one thing I could pick out. I mean, if I had to pick out something, um, soccer would be that. Like, we did play a lot of soccer down there, but that's not enough for me to, like, rethink my life plan. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. It was just the environment. It was being able to serve and being able to play soccer and just the relationships from that that week. Um, yeah, it. I I don't know. I can chalk it up to being a God thing or um, just a change of heart, I guess. I don't know. I just, I knew that I had this desire to go to college and I came back from that and didn't. It just dried up. Yeah. So. So then when you started at uh, uh, FFHM, um, what were you doing down there when you first got down there? What was that like? Uh, yeah, that was, I mean, we can kind of go into a little Camino Islandy stuff there. Uh, when you live on Camino Island, you tend to know everybody and everybody knows you. And when you have um, four brothers and you're right in the middle of that, they kind of go before you and your last name is very well known, especially if it's a unique last name. Um, and so, uh, <coughs> and then your parents are very involved in the community. And my dad's been involved in the church and my mom's been involved just, you know, at Warm Beach. And people start to know your last name. And I always was known by who my brothers were. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, you're, you're Derek's brother. You're Colin's brother. You're Trevor's brother. It's never like you're Tobin. It's yeah. like you're somebody else's brother. Um, or your parents' kid. Um, and so that was, that sticks out to me because when I went to Mexico, it was the first time I was somewhere where nobody knew me. Mm. And they didn't know who I was or what my last name was. And they didn't know, you know, whether we were musical or athletic or whatever it was. Um, <clears throat> so it was weird. It was like, oh, n- you guys have no idea who I am and you kind of get to build who you, you get to rebuild who you are. And it was weird. I mean, not rebuild like in a bad way, but like you have to start over and let people get to know you and, and um, you have to learn how to be in relationship with people you didn't know before and know nothing about you. And that involves asking a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, but to answer your specific question, (laughs) when I did get down there, um, yeah, it was kind of funny. Uh, I showed up Monday morning for work. Uh, I mean, it's all volunteer, but you all work five days a week. It's very, very, very structured um, down to the to the minute. Um, but so we do devotions in the morning from eight to nine, and then nine you show up with all the department heads. And I was the new guy that week. Um, I should clarify, it's not an orphanage like a hole in the wall orphanage that we think of. It's 150 full-time staff. Uh, it's got a Bible school, the church for the community, the fire station for the community, a uh, food kitchen, a medical clinic, a daycare, school for first through sixth graders. Um, it's a big, big operation. Um, wow. So Monday morning I showed up with the department heads and we met on this little this little uh, bridge thing on campus. And <laughs> the guy who was kind of in charge of all the all the operations there, he kind of went around to each department head and said, hey, do you need Tobin? Nope. Okay, uh, do you need Tobin? Nope. Okay, uh, do you need Tobin? Nope. Uh, okay, and then we got to the maintenance guy, um, and he's very quiet. He's actually from Washington. Um, and so he's like, hey, Rich, do you need Tobin? He's just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got into the maintenance department. <laughs> just barely squeaked by. Nothing like being needed, huh? Yeah. So I did the garbage run three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We would take this huge trailer around campus and load up, you know, 30 or 40 of those 50-gallon big blue drums that were used for garbage. And 
um, in classic Mexico style. We'd take them out to a hole in the ground and dump it in there. And then every few months, they'd light it on fire and bury it, and then we'd do it over again. And is that right or cool? No, not really, but it's not our country. So that's right. how it's done. Yeah. Um, so actually, going back just a little bit then, uh, what you were saying about kind of redefining yourself, um, that actually reminds me a lot of um, when Brittany and I started dating, and then we, when we got married, um, <clears throat> when we were over here, if I was around her friends or her family, it was, oh, you're Brittany's boyfriend, or you're Brittany's husband, or, and then she, the reverse of that if she was on Camino Island. Um, and when we moved, moved over to Pullman, it was very similar. We, people started being like, oh, Brandon or Brittany, oh, your names even go together. <laughs> like, and we, we didn't even put those, that together and all of that stuff because no one ever recognized us as Brandon and Brittany. It was Brandon with Brittany or Brittany with Brandon. And um, it was really, when we were over in Pullman, it was weird as people were like, uh, like it was never, it was never like, well, let's invite Brittany, but not Brandon. Or like, there was never any of that. Cause like, you know, I had my friends and she had her friends right. and they wanted to hang out with their friend, not their friend in plus one. Right. Um, so when we were over there, it was just always like, oh yeah, Brandon and Brittany could come. And then like moving back it was weird because we had gotten used to that and then it was kind of a little bit of like oh like our friends want to see us or like me and then her friends want to see her and it was yeah it was just really interesting but yeah that kind of but for us it really solidified that like it made us realize like no 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 like like you guys can come over um and hang out with us but like we're a couple i mean yeah. we, we do things on our own too but um yeah that was definitely something that was like that reinvention and it's, it's weird to be out of place because, yeah, when you get well-known because of your family or other people, um, you don't, you, I don't know, you, you're not really seen as you. Yeah, yeah and the, the, the nice part about, about it down there was that um, you realize that people are wanting to get to know you or wanting to have a relationship with you simply because you're you like they don't know what kind of resources you have they don't know what skills you have they don't know what you know and don't know they don't know what access you have to things like it isn't about anything that they need from you it's just that they want to have a relationship with you mm -hmm. and it's like oh that's kind of refreshing thank you <laughs> nice so you started out in the maintenance then um did you continue in that your whole time or what were kind of the things you were doing while you were down there then that? No, uh, well, in maintenance, I was, <laughs> I mean, there's, uh, it's Mexico, so um, there aren't a lot of uh, rules and regulations, so, like, um, <laughs> one of my favorite things that we ever got to do was, um, because of how big of an operation it was, and I don't even know if I should be saying this, but it was super fun, so, um, because of how big of an operation it was, and we had a medical clinic where everything was free, it was all donated stuff from the States, we'd have a truck come down every Friday um, with supplies, and... What ends up happening is stuff in the States um, has expiration dates. And when those come up, they get donated or thrown out or whatever the case may be. Um, and one of the things that uh, would get donated is all this medicine and pills and just all this, um, you know, gels, tablets, liquids, sprays, all sorts of things. Uh, they would get donated um, because... I, you know, I don't know what the regulations are on that kind of stuff, but what ended up happening is our medical clinic down there had tons and tons and tons of just 
expired stuff. Like, not only was it expired in the States and it came down there, but then down there it had expired, and so they're getting rid of it. And so we dug a hole in the ground, and we lit it all on fire. And um, it was really quite an amazing experience, the, the kinds of sounds and lights that would happen <laughs> from these things. Um, you know, some of them are in bottles that are compressed. Um, and so that's just how you got rid of things in Mexico. Yeah. Um, definitely don't encourage that or condone that whatsoever. <laughs> but it worked there. Uh, what else did I do? Um, Oh, man, stripped a lot of copper because you can recycle that. Um, water levels. We had three different wells around campus. We had the largest macadamia nut orchard outside of Hawaii. We had a huge strawberry field. Um, so a lot of water being used. Um, so check water tanks. Uh, propane tanks. There's 150 full-time staff there, and so everybody's living in these donated trailers that run off propane tanks Okay. for uh, hot water. <clears throat> Um, so I can't tell you how many propane tanks I filled back up, um, and pilot lights I started and leaky roofs I caulked and, um, I mean, you name it, uh, you're in the middle of nowhere, Mexico and whatever happens, somebody needs to figure out how to fix it. And so you just use whatever resources you have and, um, a lot of duct tape. <laughs> so I did so that. prior to this, were you very <clears throat> handy, like, up here? Mm -hmm. I like figuring things out. I like breaking things down and building them back up better. Um, or sometimes with a few less screws because I don't know where they go. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I like to tinker. I'd, uh, my dad is super handy. He, he can do anything. Um, and I probably picked up some of that from him. But I wouldn't have said I was handyman type. I was, like, techie, and uh, I like doing the technical side of the handy things not necessarily like I wasn't building forts or doing construction projects yeah um, so it's actually really good for me um, learned a lot about welding and plumbing and oh gosh the toilets that we had to unclog and um, ran a ton of cabling and ethernet and hooking the whole campus up to different networks we had four different internet networks that came in and doing all the routing and switching and filtering um, that was all incredibly fun. Um, so, yeah, I did maintenance for the first year or, I don't know, like eight months, uh, five days a week. And then my second year, I um, was able to get into the computer department. And I know what you're thinking. You're in Mexico at an orphanage. Why is there a computer department? Because uh, there are so many staff and um, accounting for the whole operation and Bible schools and school uh, schools for children and daycares and disabled children daycare. Um, there's just computers everywhere and networking. Um, and so we ran a pretty sophisticated network for the time. I mean, it's 2008, but you're also in Mexico. And so you get a lot of donated hardware that, you know, some company in the U.S. goes out of business or they are upgrading. And so you get all their Dell computers and all their routers. And yeah. so we had to basically reconfigure all that to work down there. And so I spent the second year, uh, still did the garbage run every Monday, Wednesday, Friday with visitors. We have 60 to 80 visitors from the U.S. and Canada come down every single week like clockwork. They show up on Sunday afternoon they leave on Saturday. Next one comes Sunday afternoon, leave on Saturday. And so they would help us throughout the campus and so I'd have them on the on the garbage run with me and then my second year I moved to 
mostly full-time doing computer um, and technical operations around campus, mm -hmm. um, and then just helping in maintenance when they needed. Nice. Very cool. Um, and then did you get, you were saying that when you got, went down in December, you got to play a lot of soccer. Did you continue throughout? Oh boy, did I? Yes. Yep. Lots of soccer. Um, um, I love Mexico and I love, oh, just everything about it. Um, uh, don't necessarily love playing on dirt. It's really hard to play soccer on dirt. Um, grass is a lot of fun. Um, but we played a lot of soccer on concrete, on dirt, on gravel, on sand, just wherever you play, like wherever you can find. Mm -hmm. Um, so when at the, at the orphanage, when the boys reach, um, I think it's 13, um, oh, and I should clarify something about this orphanage. It isn't necessarily an orphanage of children who don't have parents. It's often and majority of these kids, um, do have parents, but because of living situations, they are not able to raise them and so they actually opt to leaving their kids here and sign you know it's like a legal thing they can't just drop the kids off and pick them up next week they're actually giving away their kids because they need to work in the fields you know they're picking strawberries raspberries tomatoes whatever it is they're doing and they actually can't raise their children or often, there's a lot of substance abuse too um, and so a lot of these kids actually do have parents and they have uh, visiting rights on uh, one Sunday a month. Okay. Um, so it is actually like a legal thing with the government um, down there. They just do things differently. But anyways, all that to say, when the boys reach, I think it's 12 or 13, they actually move out of the orphanage into a separate house on campus so, okay. that, they're, so that they're separate. And so I got to, I got to know them very, very well. Um, and... It's kind of hard early on to get to know a lot of the kids at the orphanage because they see this pattern of, oh, Americans and Canadians come down and serve for, t for a week, and then they go home. And they just come down again the next week, and then go home. And so it's kind of hard to develop relationships with them because they know that you're going to leave. Yeah. And so um, I remember my second week there, you know, people that are living there are like, oh, why is he still here? And then the third week you're there, you're like, hmm, maybe he's, maybe he's going to be here till the end of the month. And then a month goes by and you're still there. And then they're like, oh, maybe I'll get to know them. And so once the kids, the older boys, because um, I was 19 at the time, once the older boys um, from 13 to 19 realize that you're not leaving, mm -hmm. then they just they just cling to you and they latch on to you and they just want you to be, they want you to be everywhere. Come play soccer with us. When are you going to come play soccer with us? Uh, can you hurry up and finish your dinner so we can play soccer? <laughs> um, and so we would play soccer like every night on the basketball court. Um, and they do soccer differently there. They don't necessarily play soccer to win. They play soccer to embarrass the other team. So however you can make them look bad and do tricks and things. So I learned a, just a ton of soccer down there. It was super fun. And then they um, they started inviting me to their to their leagues um, out in, you know, we drive to different cities around uh, Mexico and uh, play in different games. Um, and, yeah, once they realize that you're there to stay, they just, they love it. And so, you know, I'm the only white guy, redhead, pale, uh, <laughs> out on the team and getting all sorts of comments and, and you know, you just roll with it. They're super friendly, though. It's, it's a really good time. Um, yeah, never really felt like I was in danger or anything. Like, it was actually a truly awesome um, experience. So, yeah, a lot of soccer all over the, uh, you know, the, the region that we were in. Yeah, very cool. 
Um, so after your two years were up there, um, well, first of all, I guess, uh, as you were coming up to your end of your two years, what kind of prompted you to decide it's time to go home versus let's stay another year? Um, yeah, that's a, <clears throat> that is a good question. Um, I'll give you the short version. Um, I had worked for a couple individuals and there were, um, I don't know, there were, f there were a few instances towards the end of my second year that kind of led me to decide to leave. Um, one of them was an individual that I worked with, um, and I don't want to get too much into the philosophy of short-term missions or long-term missions or going into third world countries as an American and doing missions, but I felt like I was around some people. I, I got to witness some people who had started out with really good intentions and really good hearts about serving and moved to this orphanage and <clears throat> kind of got stuck and maybe a little bit complacent and had kind of forgotten the reason they were there to serve and were there more for expectation and I deserve this and it stopped being about serving and the attitude changed and I didn't want I didn't want to reach a point where I was there only because I didn't have anywhere else to be mm. and I wanted to be there to serve and if my heart wasn't there to serve then I needed to move on yeah. um, and now my heart was there to serve but I didn't want to overextend that and wait until I wanted to leave to leave. I yeah. wanted to look back and say, yep, I'd go back there in a heartbeat. Yeah. I wanted to leave before it was time to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and also I realized that there was kind of a cap um, being, being, you know, speaking a different language, being from a different culture, there's kind of a cap in what I could do as far as influencing the young boys in the house um, that I was really close to. And I, because of uh, realizing that there was a cap that I could be a part of their lives, um, I realized that the cap was far higher here back in my own community. If my goal is to... Um, expand the kingdom of God and reach young people, specifically young men, then my cap is much higher here in my community because we're just, we're similar. Yeah. And so I realized that a lot of, a lot of uh, Americans or Westerners go into these other countries wanting to fix things and change things. And you go down there and realize that it's not broken, it's just different. And that I could be far more influential here in my own community to young men than going 3,000 miles away. Yeah. And so the cap here is far higher. Yeah. And I realized that here in our good old country, we are far more distracted than we think we are. And I wanted to come back and um, kind of address that distraction, um, specifically technology, phones, media. It's just... There's far more distraction here, and I thought that this would be a better, um, more fertile ground for that. Well, a big thank you to Tobin Fekas for joining me on the podcast, and thank you guys for listening. Remember, come back next week for part two of this episode with Tobin Fekas.